from our studios around the world, this is Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast. Every month, we bring you the world's culinary tourism industry professionals and share with you strategies, tactics, and information that help make you a more effective leader, communicator, and professional in our culinary tourism industry. I'm your host, Eric Wolf. Thanks for listening. Welcome to episode 62. Today, we will be speaking with Selassie Atadika. After over a decade spent engaged in humanitarian work with the United Nations and years of self-teaching in the culinary arts, Selassie completed her formal culinary coursework at the Culinary Institute of America. Chef Selassie uses Ghanaian cocoa and chocolate as a base to feature the flavors and essence of Africa to celebrate and preserve Africa's culinary heritage. A food systems advocate, she was a finalist in the 2019 Basque Culinary World Prize within the top 100 in the Best Chef Awards 20-21 and a 2021 recipient of La Liste New Destination Champion Award for Africa. Selassie, welcome to the Business of Food Travel podcast and thank you for being on the show today. Selassie, I am delighted to be speaking with you today. I was looking at your biography and uh, the list of accomplishments that you've you've had in your life, and you are truly an amazing woman. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. So before we get started into some of the more exciting things that you've accomplished, I think it would be really interesting for our listeners to hear about your Eureka moment and why you decided to get involved in promoting African cuisine in the first place. Because I think your story is so telling and it's something that I've experienced as well uh, to some extent. I spend a lot of time working around the continent and I've just met a lot of different people and on so many levels, very little is known about the cuisines of the continent. I was in Central African Republic in the middle of nowhere. It was about a one-day travel from the capital. We were on our way to a national park, and um, the only place to stay was a relais de chasse, which is um, like a hunting lodge. And there was a young French sort of gap student that was working there. We were talking, and he was just saying how he'd been in in Central Africa for a couple of weeks and the food was just terrible and that African cuisine was terrible. And I sort of started probing a little bit further and I just said, how long have you been here? Then I got the two weeks. I said, which other African countries have you traveled to? He said, none. And I kind of was, you really don't have a space to even comment. You know, you've been somewhere for two weeks and haven't really met anybody. You've been in a sort of a limited context and to speak about such a massive continent and being able to um, understand it he just didn't have the bandwidth so for me I just have had a few experiences like that and just for me I fell in love with the food that my mother cooked I knew how much love went into it I understood the flavors I understood sort of the what goes behind the preservation techniques for example for the fermentation that you see a lot of and and so I knew there was amazing stuff that needed to be shared with the rest of the world and for me, I just wanted to find a way to speak about it to others as well. So that was one of the reasons I decided to do the culinary program to kind of get the alphabet, if you will, or the vocabulary to be able to express what I knew was amazing to other people and to, to actually kind of push back a little bit and just say, actually, you're wrong. I love that. And it's I have seen this many times where a European or an American has not experienced the cuisine or they think their cuisine is just better by default. Or I also see that sometimes in local destinations where the, the local residents think that the European or the North American cuisine is better and they forget to promote their own cuisine to visitors, which baffles me, but it, it still happens. 
I've noticed similar patterns in the continent. I've been lucky enough to have traveled to a little over 40 African countries. And one of the things that really struck me and one of the reasons why I decided to move back to Ghana to do what I'm doing was that every time I went to a capital city, there was really no place to have really good local food um, unless you were invited to someone's home. I would have visitors or friends or my parents would visit me and I just would be like, well, I'm going to wait for auntie so-and-so to invite me to dinner and then we can go and you guys can try the food because a lot of the sort of... um, the restaurant scene, it's changing very much so now, but in the past 10, 20 years, much of the restaurant scene was actually French, Italian, quote-unquote, continental cuisine that was set up for tourists. But I, I think we forget that actually when tourists come, they want to experience what you have to offer. We'll continue our interview in just a moment. The World Food Travel Association is the world's leading authority on food and beverage tourism. Founded in 2001, each year we serve a community of more than 100,000 professionals all around the world. Need inspiration to take your business or destination to the next level? Or are you looking for the latest trends and best practices in culinary tourism? Look no further than our Food Trucks Global Summit happening on April 27 and 28. Visit worldfoodtravel.org and click on the events tab, then the event calendar to learn more and register. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's only grown in the past 20 years. So it's good to hear that that's happened. You were originally from Ghana, but you moved to the US. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that journey? Yeah, uh, we moved in the early 80s. Ghana was going through quite a bit of instability at that time. So my family actually needed to leave Ghana at that time. We ended up moving to the Gambia. We lived there for about a year. Uh, before um, moving to the U.S. I guess for me, coming to the U.S., our main cultural sort of underpinning was always around food. My mom, I I always say that she cooked every day except Mother's Day and her birthday. We ate Ghanaian at home pretty much every day. It was there was a certain sense of warmth, comfort, a sense of of home, a sense of belonging that we had in our food. So that was really how I I grew to really just understand and and love and eat it. The ironic part about it that I I see now that I live in Ghana is that um, some of the dishes that my mom would make, you would never make at home. So there are dishes like kenke where you take ground cornmeal and you ferment it for about three to five days before you cook it for several hours. It's a dish that, or a meal, that normally you would buy because it's so laborious that no one really does it at home. But because we were in the U.S., we had no other way to access it. She used to make it at home, and it's one of the things that I actually know how it's made, but it's something that most Ghanaians on a day-to-day basis would not know how to make. When you were in the U.S., I think you started working for the U.N., is that right? Yes. Yes, um, I did start off my career working for the U.N. I um, started actually in Kosovo, and then eventually realized it was just too cold for me. Ended up moving to Liberia, and that was the first uh, posting that I had with the UN. What kind of work were you doing with the UN? I started off doing work around gender, and so I actually started in New York as an intern for what is um, now UN Women, but at the time was called UNIFEM. And it was really around understanding gender roles and trying to dismantle a lot of those challenges. When I started off in Kosovo, the work was in minority protection and looking at ways to protect and support the needs of minority communities in Kosovo at that time. I later on continued to do humanitarian works. 
I shifted to UNICEF at that time and did humanitarian response for women and children in Liberia and South Sudan. Then later worked in regional offices supporting the work around the continent for both man-made and natural disaster. When you were working for that agency of the UN, was there anything that related to food and what you were doing? What I did see was my work was not specifically around food, but the connections that food had for communities was apparent. For me, as I started seeing food bringing people together over and over again, I started realizing that food entirely on its own was an important way to both respect culture, but also to move it forward and to move communities forward. What I, my cuisine is what I call new African cuisine, where culture, community, and cuisine are intersecting with environment, sustainability, and economy. So the more we're eating what is available and grown locally, the more we're respecting the culture and um, the more we're respecting the environment. But at the same time, we're creating and stimulating the economy, the local economy. And so I, I started seeing the importance of that. There was another moment where I was looking into sort of the logistics and um, supply lines around therapeutic medicine, which is made from peanut butter, groundnut paste that's heavily fortified so that it actually is a medicine. And one of the challenges that you would see is that this product is produced in, in France. It's brought in and it has to go through the ports. It has to go on trucks. It has to be moved into different locations. And at this time, I was in uh, northern Nigeria. And it was amazing to be waiting for a product to come through the port in Lagos when it was an ingredient and a product that actually was grown locally and not in France, right? So you've got peanuts that can grow in this area of northern Nigeria. But because of major issues, the food was not getting to the children. So I started thinking more about food not only being something where it's about access or it's about rainfall, sort of the more logistics part of it, but also the social aspects of food to understand in some societies why girl children are not being fed a certain way, why in societies the different elements that can cause food insecurity. We know that the role of, of women in cuisine all around the world has been significant, whether it's the actual cooking at home or the farming in the fields or the preservation of recipes and cookbooks and so on. But a lot of times when you look at chef competitions, it's men who are getting the awards and who are taking the stage. And that's something that has always baffled me. I applaud you for taking the step as a woman and, and really taking a stance and, and helping to advance culinary education and, and so on, the transfer of knowledge in your own country and culture, because I, I think it's needed. And I think it's something that is unfortunately uh, all too often overlooked. One of the things I always ask myself when I see a lot of uh, male chefs is, you know, I wonder what happened with their sisters. Were they not also given that same love from their grandmothers and their mothers? And that's when you start seeing how, you know, I mean, even in the work that I was doing around gender, you see how women are sort of pushed out or pushed back in certain parts of the kitchen. One of the things I noticed in Ghana is that when I actually, when I, when I first moved back to Ghana, I uh, was part of a panel discussion on the role of the arts in um, making culture and in nation building. I was the only woman on the stage, but I was also, all the other participants were what people considered art forms. So there was a photographer, there was a, a, a painter, there was a, a writer. And so people were like, you know, what's this cook doing on the stage, <laughs> right? So one of the questions that I got asked early on was, what is the difference between a cook and a chef? 
because in Ghana, the word chef was never really used with national cooks or national chefs. It was always men were cooks, women were caterers or were involved in catering. The title of chef never really kind of came to the forefront, particularly when we were talking about Ghanaian professionals. It was always a chef, it was always a cook or a caterer. Before I had a chance to respond, the question was, you know, what is the difference between a cook and a chef? And as I was about to respond, someone heckled and said, a chef is someone who cooks for people who are not hungry. It really, it stuck with me. And I think to this day, it actually was probably the most appropriate answer <laughs> someone could have given for me because a lot of the, the thinking that I do around food is not necessarily about feeding you today. It's about how are we going to feed ourselves and how are we going to feed our culture in the next 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And, and those are the questions that really sort of, if you will, keep me up at night and help inspire what I do. It's a, it's a space where even in, within my team, I, you know, my team is, is women, and I've worked really hard to empower them to understand what goes into it. And to feel strong enough to, to, to be able to stand on their own and to know actually what you do know is important and what you contribute is, is largely important and it's, it's not something that should be minimalized and you should have a lot of pride and dignity. I think there's still a lot of, in Ghana, the sort of idea that if you are smart, you will go on and become a lawyer, doctor, engineer. And if you're not smart, you do vocational, you do cooking, you don't really need a lot of math and science. But meanwhile, you know, cooking is math and science. <laughs> Would you say then that the perception is changing in Ghana where women are being elevated in positions uh, in the culinary arts or are they still kind of slow to, to make this move in Ghana? I do see it happening. It's definitely slow. What I have seen over the last 10 years that I've been back is there's been a a beautiful sort of growing of local chefs. There are a lot of young people that are getting into the industry. Disproportionately, most of them are men, but you're seeing that there's much more representation by Ghanaian chefs. When I first arrived, I remember all the, and in fact, I don't think it's changed, most of the hotels and restaurants in Ghana are all expat chefs. They bring in expat talent and chefs to lead these kitchens. When you see Ghanaian chefs coming up, they're actually doing kind of what I started doing, you know, being an independent, starting off doing pop-ups and then looking for a space and a place to land. Interesting. Yeah, we see that a lot in other countries where the chefs are, are brought in, like the, the local people don't feel like, well, either it's beneath them or they just are not interested or maybe it wasn't part of their upbringing or culture to actually work in the kitchen. So they import the chefs and the cooks and mm -hmm. it's not a great way to preserve a local culinary culture, is it? No, not at all. And I think sometimes there's not even a conversation or communications. I remember there was a, uh, a female chef from Colombia that came to visit Ghana and the Colombian ambassador, she was an amazing advocate of, the, of gastronomy. She invited the two of us to do a dinner together. The ambassador um, had already, the embassy had already arranged for this visiting chef to cook at uh, one of the top hotels in, in Ghana. We did the dinner there. While she was cooking there, she kept calling me and saying, hey, where do I find this? Hey, where do I find that? Hey, where do I find that? And I was like, is there nobody in the hotel that can direct you? That's when it really was clear that because of the volumes that they're moving and because of the relationships they already have, because of the margins that they're trying to force, most of these hotels are importing a lot of their ingredients. So they have one or two local chefs that are on their team 
that are in charge of putting together the local meals, but there's not a lot of time, respect, understanding. So there's almost like a apartheid in the kitchen. And it was, it was really interesting because when I showed up for the dinner to prepare everything, there were one or two things I forgot. So when I asked the local team where the precasse was, they were like, oh, that's downstairs in the staff kitchen. We'll go get it for you. So there was literally like separate kitchens. It was like, oh, you want local ingredients? That's where they prepare the staff food. Go and get it from there. It's not in the quote unquote sort of kitchen that is being used for hotel guests. It's interesting. And, and when you think about the hotel's companies coming in and bringing in chefs and, and food and beverage directors from other countries and, and paying them the salaries to do so, that the, their cost mm-hmm. of doing that is so high. Why not just invest in the local talent? It, it's beyond me. It's the long game. I think, I think a lot of people are, are you know, not ready to invest in the long game. It, it could very well be. They, 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 want a, they want a solution for today. They're, interestingly enough, we were trying to put together a, a training program, and we went to some of the hotels and said, hey, would you allow your staff, and would you be able to invest in such a training program if we put it together? And the answer was actually no, because then they would be asking for a raise, and then they probably would leave me. Interesting. Well, that does happen uh, when people get more education and more background experience. They, that can happen, but definitely it can. But I also think at the end of the day, you also benefit as well. We all have to invest in the industry because then someone else is getting educated somewhere else and coming back to you too. That's that's very true. And kind of going back a little bit about what you were saying about the the peanut product from Nigeria, but also when mm-hmm. you have. European or American hotel companies coming in to, to set up shop. Is there a perception that this is neo-colonialism? Yes, there is. And then, no, there's not. <laughs> so on, on some parts of it, I think there's a piece of it, which is our psychology, where sometimes we see what is from the outside as better quality than what we have. You know, I'm working in the chocolate industry, but we at the same time have imported chocolate that comes from different countries that people would prefer to to have rather than the one that's made locally, even though the one that's made locally is often bean to bar or has higher cocoa content, has less preservatives, et cetera, et cetera. You start seeing that people are sort of taught that, oh, well, it's X brand from Switzerland or from somewhere in Europe, and so it's got to be better than what is made locally. I do think, though, that there gets to be a point where I say that there are hotel companies coming in, um, there are products coming in, some of it is, you know, heavy marketing. Some of it is subsidies. Sometimes we just don't get a fair shake in country. I'll just give another example. In the early 80s, there was a lot of rice from the U.S. that flooded the Ghanaian market. It came with marketing dollars, and so the, a lot of the street vendors were given aprons, given the rice, told to try to do a certain type of fried rice. And to, to this day, this fried rice has become super popular and um, it's much faster and easier than some of the traditional fufus and bankus and kenkes and, and in terms of speed to prepare it in 20 minutes and get it on the table. You see a lot of our food culture getting wiped out by sometimes forces that you don't even understand. <laughs> and when I went back to do the research, it seemed that at that time in the U.S. history, there were subsidies of up to 73% that were given to rice farmers, and that created this massive glut, and it ended up in Ghana. <laughs> <laughs> it's had a, a beneficial effect, like you said. People can get food on the table faster, but at the same time, it's at the cost of reducing your culinary culture to a, a memory. Mm. 
But let's talk about something fun. We, we've talked about quite a few serious and intense issues. And yeah. you work in chocolate. And I think I've only met one person in my life who didn't like chocolate, which I still don't understand. But, <laughs> but chocolate is a happy industry. And it's interesting because just in the at the end of last year, we were trying to create a white paper about chocolate tourism. And we did uh-huh. look at Ghana. We looked at Ivory Coast. We looked at um, many other chocolate-producing countries like Indonesia, Brazil, Grenada. And we could not Mm -hmm. believe how difficult it was to get a sense of what was happening with chocolate tourism. It's, It's just not that well organized. But here you are making chocolate, exporting chocolate with Ghanaian beans, the cocoa beans, and having success with this. So tell us a little bit more about how you got into this, the successes and challenges that you've had, and and. Do you see future visitors coming to to Ghana to to try chocolate on site? I hope so. So my journey into chocolate has been sort of accidental in many ways. I started off doing these dinners in Ghana, and the dinners were really about highlighting local ingredients that were either underutilized or undervalued. Ghanaian cocoa was just one where we have it. It's an amazing ingredient, but we're not using it a lot in-country most of the beans were being exported out. So everyone knows about Ghanaian cocoa beans, but people were not talking about Ghanaian chocolate. And so at the end of the meal, I would make these truffles um, as part of the Mignardis course, and that would go out. People started asking for them outside of the dinners and wanted to purchase them. We started making them in Ghana in around 2015. And I just really used the chocolate as a platform to highlight local ingredients um, as well. So my very first truffle was using ginger because we just, we love ginger in our cuisine. And so um, we ended up candying it in honey. We made our own ginger liqueur, made this little sort of classic rolled truffle out of it. Kept going along that theme and thinking about what other ingredients from the dinners, um, what other ingredients we were finding that we fell in love with, we could use in the chocolate. In 2020, during COVID, we had to stop our dinners the pivot that we made at that time was, okay, people can't come to us for the dinners, but our chocolates can go to them. We managed around uh, November of 2020 to get our chocolates into the U.S. for the first time. I, for me, it's, it was just a wonderful way to share my food culture in a product that, like you said, most people love. So yeah, it's a great place to start a conversation. And I think it's easily accessible and it's, it's relatable. Um, and so that's how Meet a New Chocolate started. Wow, exporting a new product in the middle of the pandemic in one of the world's most difficult markets, that that's nothing challenging about that, was there? <laughs> no, especially when, when the entire world is actually just trying to extract the beans, right? Um, so yeah, definitely a lot of challenges. And I think having seen that there was no chocolate coming out of Ghana, I, I don't know why in my mind I was like, it can't be that hard. <laughs> but I've learned. What would you say some of the challenges are that you've learned to overcome? I'm not sure I've overcome all of them, but one of the the biggest challenge has been um, cold chain. So the truffles are made in Ghana and shipped as finished product. That is a challenge to make sure that the temperature stays within that 18 to 20 Celsius through the journey. Uh, We figured it out and it's working. Um, Hopefully we will get better at it. Other things that we've done around that is also create new products that are more shelf-stable and are less delicate. So we now have drinking chocolates and we have bars and snacks that we have as part of our product mix. 
one of the challenges that we're still kind of struggling with is um, in Ghana, the legal infrastructure was really set up for the extraction of the cocoa beans. I think at the during independence, the idea was that the income from the cocoa beans would support a lot of the social aspects, whether it was education and healthcare, etc. There's really a a strong emphasis on that. And now that we have a lot of artisanal makers in the chocolate and the cocoa space, that's being revisited. But as of today, it's illegal for me to buy cocoa beans from a cocoa farmer. When I set up, I wasn't ready to go to jail or get in trouble. <laughs> so um, we started working with companies that are purchasing the beans and then doing the first level of processing. So we are chocolatiers and not chocolate makers just because um, of the legal framework was a bit easier for larger companies to do the first level processing. But it's been great because the partners that we work with are able to get traceable, ethically sourced chocolate, and it's um, the beans that we use for the chocolate are actually organic. So it's, it's, it's given us opportunities to sort of do what we do well, and as a chef, mine is flavor, and then um, let others who also have their own expertise do what they do well. So you mentioned that your chocolate is organic. Have you gone for any of the certifications, whether they're organic or fair trade? Do do any of those hold value to you or do you look at them more as first world marketing schemes? (laughs) It's a mixed bag. I think for us, we're in the process of trying to get the uh, certification for the bars. For me, it's a bit complicated, I would say. Um, I do want to try to get as much as possible the certification, but I'm not tied to it because a lot of the spices that we work with are grown well. However, it's the, the protocols and the certification process is really expensive and difficult for indigenous spices. The spices that we work with do not have that certification, but the beans that we work with do have that certification. So we, for me, I, I hope that people understand that a smallhold farmer who's producing a, very, a lesser known spice like Precasse is doing it in a, a proper way, but the certification process is expensive and laborious and they would not be able to get that done, but we want to share that spice with the world. That's how we explain it. As much as we can, we work with good agricultural practices in terms of who we purchase from, um, but it can't always be organic. So I think in terms of standards and principles, it's, it's a great idea, but in implementation, it becomes complicated. And oftentimes, I think some of the smaller hold farmers, the lesser known ingredients, end up suffering because of these schemes. Would that be something like BSAP that I saw on a recent map of spices across Africa and where they come from? Yes. I think we have to remember that a lot of the agriculture is coming from smallhold farmers. Smallhold farmers do not have access to a lot of sort of the resources that would allow for them to get these kind of certifications, but they can be doing done in standard good practices. BSAP is, some people might know it as, um, in the Caribbean, they would call it sorrel. In Senegal, they call it BSAP. In Ghana, it's called either, uh, it's called Sobolo. Nigeria, Zobolo, Kerkader in the sort of the Middle East. It's from the wild hibiscus family, and um, the petals are used in many different teas and drinks and tisans, while the leaves traditionally are used for soups and stews. They're coming from smallhold farmers who don't have the resources, and I think you'll see that with a lot of other ingredients that have huge potential to create economies for rural communities. Can you offer any advice to communities that feel like they're not getting a fair shake when it comes to the food that they're, the ingredients that they're producing? It's, it sounds like there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of regulation, 
mm-hmm. I can't even begin to think about all of the different components that go into it. But <laughs> what advice could you offer to other communities, whether they're in Africa or Latin America or Asia? There's there has to be some common threads of knowledge that you that you could share. We need to create supply and demand around these ingredients that are equitable. So first, having to understand what are the existing bottlenecks that that ingredient has while creating um, support for, while creating the demand for it. So one of the challenges I've been sort of seeing is how do we as communities make sure that the indigenous communities are benefiting from the sort of popularization of these ingredients? I don't know if that's even a word, but as, as these ingredients become more popular and become more mainstream and or potentially become, you know, superfoods, how do we make sure that the local communities where these ingredients have been grown for decades continue to benefit. That's why I think it's important to create the demand. But before the demand, you need to understand the supply line and to make sure that the right systems are in place to ensure the benefit of these communities. Some countries, some governments have done better, but there's still challenges. I know there's around, for example, rooibos tea. Rooibos tea is one of the ingredients that we use in our truffles, and it's a, a red tea that comes from South Africa or Southern Africa. And um, the South African government now has a, a whole policy where the companies that are producing it have to give a certain percent of their profits back to the communities where this has actually been grown and where these ingredients have a geographical identification. So I think we don't have enough geographical identification. How do we look into doing more of that? How do we look at creating processes Understanding, I think it's also important for us to understand how much of this ingredient is available. How much should we be sharing? Is this ingredient something that needs to stay for the community's use? Is this an ingredient that needs to be shared with the outside world to allow that ingredient to survive? Because I think there's a lot of different things that go into it. The community needs the income, but the community might also need the ingredient. Um, how do you create that balance? And I think it's by having conversations. We need to have conversations, understand the ingredients, understand its value, understand its, I think, the environmental impact, and then build around that. It requires people to work together. And I think that's the, I think the beautiful and the difficult thing about food is that it touches everybody and it involves a lot of people. And that's why I think sometimes it becomes, it can feel overwhelming. But I think the basics is supply knowing your supply, and then being able to work with like-minded people, working with your local chefs to create that demand, working with your local press, working with the different people once you have a good understanding of that supply. Well, this is clearly something that you're quite passionate about. I'm almost getting the sense that this is kind of building towards the legacy that you want to leave behind as a professional. Yes. I think for for me, um, trying to find space for local producers whether it's you know artisanal ingredients like dawa dawa that are fermented by local women or it's an ingredient that is currently at risk of deforestation, how do I as a chef create a space for those ingredients to survive me and survive the next generation? And how do we make sure that we create the economy for the people who have been producing it to continue to produce it? And I think that's the legacy that I, I would love to leave behind and trying to figure out how to do that. And at the moment, the, the foundation of it is to try to have that conversation through chocolate. Well, chocolate's a great thing to have a conversation about. Think about how many times we've had hot chocolate or someone's offered you a piece of chocolate. 
Uh, I've been mm-hmm. in countries where someone, whether it's a driver or in a meeting or something, and they put chocolate on the table, it's kind of like a, an international icebreaker, if you will. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, what are you reading right now? Anything interesting? I'm currently going through for a second time in BB's Kitchen. It's a cookbook that's uh, written about, it's really talks about grandmothers. And I think this kind of goes back to the beginning of the conversation of how do we have culinary custodians stay in the conversation around gastronomy? And it's uh, written by Hawa Hassan. It looks at the food from our aunties and grandmothers. And for me, it's just something that's very dear to my heart and allows me to kind of re-energize myself despite all the various challenges that you know you face to kind of go back to the beginning, go back to the home kitchen where just amazing flavor has been developed. It sounds like a book that I should put on my reading list as well. Definitely. We need to, to wrap up soon and uh, be on our way. And, uh, and you're a busy woman. I'm sure you've got some, some chocolate emergency <laughs> happening right now. Is there anything else that you'd like to share, like maybe a quote you're known for or a pet peeve that you'd like to, to talk about? One of the things that I think I'm currently, it's an um, inspirational quote that I hold dear to me, is live life as if everything is rigged in your favor by Rumi. I think the environment that I'm working in with the chocolates, we're literally trying to change the narrative. And so things often don't go as I would like to. So it's just kind of trying to remember that everything is happening for a reason. I need to understand it and to work with it to, to keep going. You know, it's, it's, it is rigged in my favor and I just need to sometimes turn the puzzle pieces around a little bit and have a new look. I love that. So not give up, but try to look at things through a different light, through a different lens. Absolutely. Um, I would love to also share, if possible, a discount code if anyone would love to buy some or try some of our chocolates. Sure. It would be World Food Travel 10. World Food Travel 10. That's easy enough to remember. Great. Wonderful. Well, Selassie, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge of, of Ghana, the infrastructure, the production process, the chocolate industry, the culinary industry. You definitely opened my eyes, and I'm sure the eyes of, of many of our listeners as well. So thank you so much for, for sharing your time today. Thank you so much, and it was a pleasure talking to you. You as well. Take care. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of the Eat Well, Travel Better podcast. This episode is brought to you by the World Food Travel Association and its Food Trucks Global Summit, the next event of which takes place on April 27 and 28, 2023. We'd like to hear from you. We invite you to share your ideas, questions, and thoughts about the podcast by emailing us at help at worldfoodtravel.org. Or you can connect with us and comment about the episode on major social media platforms. Special thanks to our guest, Selassie Atadika, and our sincere thanks to you for joining us. I'm Eric Wolf, wishing you a safe, happy, and productive month ahead.